There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. With a usual question of the day, what has Gwyneth Paulow recently tormented her rear end with? If you know the answer to that question, call us at 514-790-0800 or text your questions to 514-800. What has Gwyneth Paltrow recently tormented her rear end with? All right, that will give us something to discuss. But, of course, there are other things to discuss in the news as well. Uh, Just about every day, there's a new study that comes out about PFAS, perfluoroalkyl substances. And uh, these are the so-called ubiquitous forever chemicals because they don't break down easily in the environment. And they are found everywhere. They're in our water, they're in our food, and they are in our bloodstream. Of course, to very, very small extents, but nevertheless, it is worrisome because they have been associated with various kinds of diseases in laboratory studies and in some human epidemiological uh, uh, trials as well. All right, uh, what's the latest on these? They're in our toilet paper. A study just came out, University of Florida, where they investigated 21 different kinds of toilet paper, and all of them contained some of these perfluoroalkyl substances. Of course, we're talking about very, very small amounts. We're talking about uh, parts per trillion, but nevertheless, they are there. Nobody is suggesting at this point that wiping your rear with uh, toilet paper is going to have any toxic consequences in terms of uh, any absorption of the perfluoroalkyl substances from the toilet paper. That's not the concern. The concern is where that toilet paper ends up because we use an awful lot of toilet paper. The average North American uses about 57 pounds of toilet paper a year And if you want to take a a look at uh, annual output of toilet paper uh, that goes down the the toilets in in North America, it's about 19 billion pounds a year. And this ends up, of course, in in, uh, sewage treatment systems. And uh, some of the sludge from those sewage treatment systems can be used as fertilizer, which means that it ends up in soil, which means it can... ends up in our crops, which can mean it ends up in us and in in our blood. Now, exactly what it is doing there, well, we don't really know. All we know that it is there, we'd rather not have it uh, be there. But we also have to be cognizant of the fact that these perfluoroalkyl substances are just one class of potentially toxic substances uh, to which we are routinely exposed. Now, I say potentially. Because toxicity, of course, depends on dose, which in the case of PFAS is in the parts per trillion range. That's a very small amount. You know, that's, uh, you know, one drop in in 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And nevertheless, they're there. And there are many other potential toxins, you know, that that, uh, we are exposed to. They include benzene and phthalates and bisphenol A and trihalomethanes and pesticides and radon and lead and mercury, cadmium, chromium, formaldehyde, 
polybrominated diphenyl ether flame retardants and asbestos and arsenic, dioxins, PCBs, microplastics, nitrogen oxides, and many, many others. So I don't mean to terrorize you with these, but we can detect them thanks to the evolution of our analytical chemical equipment. We can detect down, things down to parts per trillion. Doesn't mean that they're doing anything, but we don't, also don't know that they're not. So we have to be mindful of, of these uh, substances. And of course, also of the natural toxins that are present in our food, like acrylamide, uh, polycyclic hydrocarbons and aflatoxins, you know, that come, uh, they come from baked goods, uh, from molds, etc. So we are constantly swimming in a pool of potential toxins. Nevertheless, our life expectancy uh, is holding steady. Of course, in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, uh, some decline due to the death due to, to COVID. Uh, so, uh, you know, we are exposed to all of these things. They do cause a, a lot of worry. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, legitimately uh, so. But uh, we have to take it in stride. We cannot totally r rid our existence of these uh, substances. And, uh, you know, we will keep on detecting more and more because of the evolution of our uh, uh, analytical chemical technology. All right. Uh, of course, I, I very quickly got an answer to the question about Gwyneth Paltrow because uh, it's been in the news and I've even commented on it and uh, this article by um, on the National Post uh, by Sharon Kirky, very good article uh, discussing this. Uh, well, Gwyneth Paltrow, I mean, you know, she's she's the font of many jokes and of much mirth uh, because of all the stuff that she's advertising on her Goop uh, website. And uh, Gwyneth, who, of course, was a very good actress, uh, but now she is into gooping people and uh, selling all kinds of fascinating products. And now she has gone on to... Um, kind of invading one of her other orifices. Uh, you may remember her, uh, the invasion of her uh, vagina with these uh, uh, sort of oval-shaped uh, jade uh, balls. And uh, that was supposed to have some kind of a stimulant uh, effect. But uh, now she's exploring her rectum with ozone. That's the gas that she has uh, injected. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what technology that uh, she used, but um, uh, it didn't do her any good. Uh, there's uh, no question that ozone, O3 chemically, uh, it's an allotrope of oxygen, meaning that it's composed only of oxygen, but uh, in this case, three atoms bonded together instead of uh, the usual two. Uh, ozone gas does not have any therapeutic value when it is uh, introduced through the rectum. It has a great deal of value when it is used to treat water. Uh, water, of course, is uh, uh, raw water, contains all kinds of bacteria, and ozone treatment can rid it of bacteria. And indeed, the Montreal Water uh, Treatment System uses ozone in order to uh, sanitize it. But uh, in terms of, of uh, you know, uh, killing bacteria in the body, or as some people claim reducing or even treating cancer, this is just absolute nonsense. So Gwyneth uh, didn't tell us exactly why she was doing this, 
and uh, you know what the outcome was uh but uh let me tell you that this is is just uh, uh total nonsense and no one should go and follow uh, in uh, Gwyneth footsteps certainly not in um, in this uh, this fashion all right well that question was uh, you know answered and uh, uh let's just forget about any kind of detoxifying effects of uh, ozone in the rectum but uh, I'll ask you another question, uh, I guess a more reasonable one. Why do people hang a container of calcium chloride in their closet? So why do some people hang a container of calcium chloride in their closet? And um, uh, hopefully we'll get an answer to that because, of course, there's a good scientific explanation here. Um if you don't remember who you're listening to, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. I'm a chemistry prof, and uh, my view is that chemistry is the central thread that ties all the other sciences together, and that if you have a good grasp of chemistry, you can have a pretty good understanding of the way the world works and what is scientifically plausible and what is not. Well, right now, we're going to take a short break, check what traffic is uh, is all about, and we'll come back, hopefully with an answer to my question about why some people hang calcium chloride in their closet. And we will also jump into our time machine and go back to 1904 and the St. Louis World's Fair. Let me uh, follow up a little bit on the ozone that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow uh, treated her rectum with. Uh, the name of ozone derives from the re- Greek word for smell. And there was Swiss chemist Christian Friedrich Schumbein who named it so from ozane, which is the Greek word for smell, back in 1840. Uh, Schumbein noted a particular odor while carrying out an experiment on the electrolysis of water. That's when you pass electric current through the water to split it into oxygen and hydrogen, and surmised that some sort of gas had formed when he turned on the electrical equipment. The same odor can be noted in the vicinity of a photocopying machine and is also the fresh smell produced by a thunderstorm. In these instances, oxygen molecules, which are O2, are broken down into their component oxygen atoms, which then react with each other to form ozone, which is O3. Ozone is an excellent example of how the same substance can be either useful or problematic. In the upper atmosphere, ozone protects us from excessive ultraviolet light, but at ground level, where it forms when sunlight reacts with automobile exhaust, it is a nasty pollutant. Ozone can cause respiratory problems, it can reduce the lifetime of rubber tires, and it plays a role in smog formation. On the other hand, ozone can be used to purify water, eliminating some of the problems associated with chlorination. It can also decontaminate operating rooms after surgeries, get rid of the smell of smoke after fires, and bleach wood pulp, reducing the need for chlorine or chlorine dioxide. It can do all those things, but it cannot do anything when it is pumped into your rear end. Okay. Um, we're going to take a little trip. We're jumping into our time machine, and we're going back to 1904 and the St. Louis World's Fair. 
That's the one immortalized by the song Meet Me in St. Louis, written for the opening of the fair, and uh, it was made famous 40 years later by Judy Garland, who sang it in the classic film with the same title. And uh, Jimmy has dug out that song for us. Let's listen to it. Okay, we'll see. It's playing, okay. Okay, so that's uh, Judy Garland. Meet me in St. Louis. Notice the the pronunciation there is meet me in St. Louis, not the usual St. Louis. Um, Anyway. There was no singing at the Pure Food Exhibit in the Palace of Agriculture, which was one of the main features of the World's Fair. There was no singing, but there was a lot of gasping by the onlookers who were watching a piece of white flannel being dyed pink. Why were they gasping? Because in front of their eyes, the dye had been extracted from a common food. That was ketchup. The demonstrator explained that this was a poisonous aniline dye used to make pumpkin pulp look tomato ketchup. When the same extraction method was applied to a sample of authentic ketchup, no dye was to be seen. More eyebrows were raised when the crowd was shown a bottle labeled as pure lemon extract. Instead of lemon oil, it contained toxic wood alcohol colored yellow with an aniline dye. And then a sample of supposedly cayenne pepper turned out to be nutshells dyed red. Aniline dyes made another appearance in strawberry jam that was nothing but macerated pumpkin mixed with timothy seed. The goal of these startling demonstrations was to alert the public to some of the nefarious methods being used at the time to boost profits by adulterating foods. Aniline dyes, often referred to as coal tar dyes, due to the source of the aniline, sounded particularly dreadful and had in fact never been tested for safety in food. Indeed, such demonstrations did manage to alert the public, and their alarm was further raised with the publication of Upton Sinclair's iconic book, The Jungle, which described the horrors of the meatpacking industry. And boy, These were horrid indeed. As Sinclair witnessed, quote, rats were nuisances and the packers would put poisoned bread out for them. They would die and then rats, bread and meat would go into the hoppers that ground everything into sausages. The foundations were laid for the passage of the first law in the U.S. to ever address the problem of food adulteration. And that was the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act. Well, when fairgoers emerged from the Palace of Agriculture, uh, having just watched the distressing demonstrations, they were likely to cast a wary eye on all the foods were were being sold by the many concessions that lined the pike, which was the fair's major thoroughfare, particularly the sausages. As the story goes, 
German immigrant Antoine Feitwanger was selling hot sausages from his booth, and he handed out white gloves to his customers to prevent their hands from getting greasy. He ran out of gloves. But as luck would have it, a vendor next to him was selling waffles. Feitwanger had a brainstorm and wrapped his sausages in those waffles, and the hot dog was born. Intriguing story, but almost certainly apocryphal. There are accounts of British immigrant Harry Stevens becoming obsessed with baseball and selling sausages in French rolls at the polo grounds in New York well before 1904, and supposedly Charles Feltman had wrapped his sausages in pie dough on Coney Island in the late 1800s. A better case can be made for ice cream cones being invented at the fair. Ice cream, of course, was already well known at the time, but it was being sold in paper cups. While a vendor, Arnold Fornachu, ran out of the cups, and that precipitated another brainstorm. Luckily, nearby was a waffle maker, usually identified as Ernest Hanwi, a Syrian immigrant. Fornachu then twisted a waffle into a cone, plunked a scoop of ice cream on top, and gave birth to the ice cream cone. A famous picture taken at the fair shows three children licking ice cream from cones that do look like waffle cones. According to various other accounts, cotton candy, peanut butter, and Dr. Pepper were also introduced at the St. Louis Fair. While they were certainly popularized there, they had all been produced and sold before 1904. William Morrison and John Morton had patented a machine that melted sugar in a spinner and forced it through tiny holes into streamers that froze on contact with the cooler air and turned into what they called fairy floss. Morrison benefited in more than one way from this invention since he was a dentist. The peanut butter that tantalized pallets at the fair was produced by a machine that ground peanuts into a paste patented a year earlier by Dr. Ambrose Straub, who had first come up with the idea in order to provide a protein supplement to the many patients he had whose rotten teeth prevented them from chewing on hard foods. Even before Straub, though, in 1884, it was Canadian chemist Marcellus Gilmore Edson who patented a process for producing peanut paste again for people who had a hard time chewing solid food. And in 1895, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg also introduced an early form of peanut butter, in his case, as a substitute for meat, which he considered to be sexually inflammatory. Dr. Pepper had been invented in the 1880s by pharmacist Charles Alderton in Waco, Texas, and was originally advertised as a beverage that restores vim, vigor, and vitality. At the St. Louis Fair, customers were urged to guess the 23 flavors that comprised the formula. None managed to do so correctly, and that formula remains a secret to this day. But now you know some of the history of the St. Louis 1904 World's Fair, and we'll check what's going on at present times by listening to CTV News. We'll be right back. I did get a correct answer to my question about uh, calcium chloride. question was, why would you hang some calcium chloride in your closet? 
And the answer is to reduce the humidity. Uh, humidity in the closet is not very good because it is conducive to the growth of molds. And uh, calcium chloride uh, absorbs moisture. And uh, it can indeed reduce the humidity in, in a closet. It's very often advertised as a dehumidifier that doesn't need electricity. And uh, you can buy this. It's uh, very often sold as a product called Damprid. And uh, it works. But, I mean, of course, you're not going to dehumidify a whole house with this. It works in an enclosed space. And those of you who have done some... Uh, organic chemistry, uh, you may remember the use of a calcium chloride drying tube. And whenever we have to exclude moisture from a chemical reaction, uh, we have to make sure that any air that enters the reaction passes through a calcium chloride uh, uh, drying tube. So that's why uh, you might use it in order to dehumidify in a closet. <laughs> uh, just by coincidence, uh, Drew uh, asked a question, texted a question about the white mold that uh, sometimes you see growing on soil in a plant and whether or not baking soda would be able to control that. Uh, actually, I think, yes, uh, there have been studies showing that baking soda is effective against uh, such mold. Uh, but I think the way that you have to do it is you make up a solution of, of um, baking soda in water, often together with some soap, and then you uh, pour that onto the mold. I think there, there, there are probably all kinds of recipes, you know, on the internet on how to do that. But I think it, uh, it actually does make sense to use baking soda in that uh, fashion. Baking soda, of course, has many uses. Uh, you can put it in your refrigerator because it has an uh, ability to absorb smells. And many of the smells that uh, uh, are released by you know produce in the refrigerator are, are various acids. And baking soda can uh, neutralize uh, those. And, and obviously, it can also be used for baking. And when you use it for uh, baking, I mean, just by itself, when you heat up sodium bicarbonate, it does release uh, carbon dioxide gas. However, it does much more that much more efficiently when you combine it with an acid. And uh, that's what uh, baking powder is. It's a combination of baking soda with an acid. And uh, very often the acid that is used is cream of tartar. And, uh, you know, cream of tartar is close to the heart of any organic chemist uh, because the study of this compound by Louis Pasteur back in 1848 was pivotal in leading to the understanding of the three-dimensional structure of molecules. A cream of tartar is actually potassium hydrogen tartrate, and it's a byproduct of winemaking, remains behind as a sediment after fermentation. In chemical terms, it is tartaric acid that has been partially neutralized and still retains the degree of acidity. Pasteur found that the cream of tartar that was produced during fermentation was not exactly the same as the version made in the laboratory and suggested that the molecules were actually mirror images of each other. Eventually, two chemists, Van Hoff and Lebel, concluded that this was possible only if the molecules were not planar but three-dimensional. In fact, the tetrahedral carbon atom is the cornerstone of organic chemistry. 
Anyway, emotional connections aside, there are plenty of reasons to appreciate cream of tartar. It's a cheap, safe, readily available mild acid, ideal for generation of carbon dioxide from baking soda. In fact, one version of baking powder is a mixture of sodium bicarbonate and cream of tartar. When the mixture dissolves, bubbles of carbon dioxide are released. Same chemistry can be used to keep your drains clear. Just mix up a, some baking soda, cup of bicarbonate, one quarter cup of cream of tartar, cup of salt, and periodically pour a few spoonfuls down the drain. The bubbling action can dislodge small blockages, <laughs> underline small. They're not going to do away with those globs of hair that may be blocking the, the drain. Candy makers also know all about cream of tartar. Candies are basically made by cooling down solutions in which a lot of sugar has been dissolved. But this has to be done in a fashion that only small crystals form. Otherwise, the candy becomes too little, too brittle, and, and very crunchy. If a small amount of cream of tartar is added, a chemical reaction takes place by which table sugar or sucrose is broken down into glucose and fructose, and these are less likely to form large crystals, and therefore they will not interfere with the crystallization of the sucrose. There's something else that cream of tartar can interfere with, protein molecules joining to each other. That's just what happens when we whip egg whites to make a meringue. Coiled proteins unwind and join together to make a rigid three-dimensional network. Sometimes, however, the proteins form too many links to each other, and overcoagulation results, and that causes the meringue to be lumpy. The addition of cream of tartar limits the extent to which proteins can bond to each other. So, it is a pastry chef's beloved friend. If that still isn't enough to make you appreciate cream of tartar, how about its cleaning abilities? If you have a blackened aluminum pot, just put in about a liter of water, two spoonfuls of cream of tartar, and boil. It will even take rust stains out of fabrics and remove them from the bathtub. So, what can I tell you? Obviously, no household should be without baking soda. Okay, uh, let me pose another question since my calcium chloride question was uh, answered. What does the term mellitus mean in diabetes mellitus? M-E-L-L-I-T-U-S, diabetes mellitus. Why is that term associated with diabetes? If you know the answer to that question, you can give us a call at 514-790-0800. Text your answers to 514-800. And uh, let me remind you that uh, you can call with whatever question you have that you think I may have uh, a chance of answering. Uh, again, 514-790-0800. So it's, it's not only an answer to my questions, you know, that allows you to call. You can call with uh, any question that uh, that you may have. And I'm sure that there are uh, all sorts of uh, questions out there. Okay, before we uh, uh, take another break and check traffic, let me just uh, tell you a little bit about plumbing because we were talking about drain cleaners anyway, would you believe that the profession of plumber actually derives its name from an element? Which element? Lead. As you may know, PB is the abbreviation for the element lead. 
and the Latin term for lead was plumbum. And by the 14th century in England, an artisan who worked with lead was known as a plumber. When water and sewage pipes began to be introduced around the same time, workers who installed and repaired them naturally became known as plumbers. Interestingly, the ancient Romans had long before developed a sophisticated system of lead pipes, but the technology seems to have been lost during the Dark Ages. The Romans were, of course, unaware of the fact that lead can contaminate water and cause various neurological problems. Indeed, some historians suggest that the downfall of the Roman Empire can be linked to the impairment of proper judgment by Roman rulers. And uh, why was that? They were poisoned by the lead. Lead was seeping into their beverages from the containers in which it was stored. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show, and uh, we'll check traffic and be right back. Okay, uh, someone is asking me a trivia question, actually, uh, whether or not I know which letter does not appear on the periodic table. And, well, of course, I know that. It's a classic chemistry question. There's no letter J and there's no letter Q on the periodic table. None of the elements have that shortened version uh, in their in their symbol. Uh, someone else wants to know how effective beetroot juice is in reducing blood pressure. <clears throat> well, there have been a number of studies on uh, beetroot juice. Uh, beetroot juice contains nitrates, naturally occurring nitrates, which in the body can get converted to nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is a vasodilator. And when your arteries dilate, it means that the blood pressure drops. So there is some legitimacy here. But you cannot reliably control your blood pressure by drinking uh, beetroot juice. If there's a blood pressure issue, uh, of course, uh, you reduce salt in in the diet, uh, eat fewer processed foods. But Really, the the way to control it it was is with medication, and there are many medications today that are very effective at at uh, lowering blood pressure. Uh, I guess you know if if uh, you um, have uh, just mildly elevated blood pressure, you can give a try to regularly drinking beetroot juice to see what that does. And uh, if you drink it consistently, it may actually have an effect. But uh, do you really want to drink beetroot juice? <laughs> regularly in order to control your blood pressure. Uh, you also have to make sure that that beetroot juice uh, does not contain excessive amounts of, of, of sugar. And there's something else that you have to remember, that the beetroot juice that comes into your body may make a dramatic exit. And if you don't remember that you've been consuming this red juice, you may get uh, quite a scare when you look into the toilet bowl. Anyway, being St. Patrick's Day, uh, we got to talk about something green. Uh, so let's turn to green eggs. What happens if you pour red cabbage juice on the white part of a fried egg? It turns green. Well, the color of red cabbage juice, actually it's purple, is due to the compounds called anthocyanins. <clears throat> And these water-soluble pigments are responsible for the color of many fruits and vegetables. And they are natural acid-base indicators, meaning that the color varies depending on whether they are found in an acidic or an alkaline environment. 
In the case of red cabbage, the juice is normally purple but becomes red in acid and greenish-blue in a base. Anthocyanins are produced by plants to protect themselves against bright light. Plants, of course, need light for photosynthesis, but light can also generate free radicals in the plant's tissues, which can impair the photosynthetic process. Anthocyanins fall into the general category of compounds known as polyphenols, and they are antioxidants. In other words, they inactivate free radicals. And we humans make good use of plants' attempts to protect themselves from excessive light. When we eat plant products, we ingest the anthocyanins, which can act as antioxidants in our bodies as well. And red cabbage is higher in anthocyanins than the green variety. Plus, of course, you can have some fun with it. Just boil some shredded red cabbage in a minimum amount of water, strain the juice, pour some on your fried eggs. Now you can have green eggs and ham. Why? Because the white of the egg uh, is alkaline. So it will have the effect of turning the green, the, the purple juice, uh, you know, bluish. And uh, that will give you a sensation of a, a green uh, color. It all depends on just how alkaline the, the eggs are. Anyway, it's an interesting little experiment. Uh, but you'll have to cope with the smell of boiled cabbage. Uh, and uh, it's worth doing. After all, how many chemical experiments can you perform when you can eat the product of the reaction after, right? Not all that many. Uh, well, talking about, you know, adding uh, chemicals to our food, <clears throat> adding vinegar to water when you're cooking old potatoes does prevent them from turning gray. Uh, it's a time-honored method. It's actually based on sound chemistry. Potatoes contain small amounts of iron in the ionic state. Ions are molecules that have lost or gained electrons to become charged species. And the iron in potatoes is in the so-called ferrous state, meaning it has a plus two charge. As the potato ages, it is exposed to oxygen in the air. Oxygen can steal another electron from ferrous ion, oxidizing it, then becomes ferric ion which has a plus three charge, also has some different chemistry. Ferric iron, unlike ferrous, can form a dark-colored complex with chlorogenic acid, which is naturally found in potatoes. Complex is not unhealthy, just unsightly. It can be decomposed quite easily by acids, and vinegar is readily available acid, and it does the job nicely. I think we have Jazz on the line with a question. Hey, welcome. Hi, thank you. I got a little question. I do yeah. my camper antifreeze for the winter. When I want to okay. take care of the antifreeze, can I save it, reuse it, or does it in effect? Can you reuse it? Yes. I can capture it in the in the bottle. You're draining you're draining it out from what? From where? From the camper. From the camper. And where yeah. do you want to put it? I'm gonna reuse. Can I reuse it? You mean you just drained it out for the winter, and now you want to put it back? So in the, in the winter, the... I put antifreeze in the pipes. So when the summer comes, I had to take it out all the antifreeze. So mostly, I throw it out. Or is no, I mean you, you. No, you can reuse that. You Thank mean you, you want to save it for ne- you want to save it for next year and reuse it? Exactly. Yes. Oh, There's no right. no reason that you can't use that. Yeah. 
That's great. Antif yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Antifreeze doesn't break. Antifreeze is ethylene glycol. Doesn't uh, it doesn't break down? So you can you can reuse that. Great. Thank okay. you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one thing, of course, with ethylene glycol, it's a very effective uh, uh, antifreeze. I mean, this is you know what we use in the radiators of cars and and keep your pipes from from freezing, but it is certainly not consumable. Uh, ethylene glycol is 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 highly toxic. Now, the reason I mentioned that is because it also has a, a sweet taste. And when people uh, chain, drain the ethylene glycol sometimes from their radiators and they do it in the driveway, and some of it spills onto the driveway, dogs can come and lick it up. And that can be dangerous. Dogs uh, will go for sweets and they can lick it up. And uh, there are dogs that have been poisoned uh, by that. And uh, the, uh, of course, that needs treatment by a veterinarian if a dog uh, has ingested ethylene glycol. Uh, ethylene glycol is, is metabolized in the body and it turns into uh, oxalic acid. And oxalic acid is, uh, is quite toxic. Now, there, there are um, ways to, to treat it. Uh, you do have to neutralize the acid very often with, uh, with uh, uh, using a base. Uh, but uh, you know it, it it can be a very dangerous situation. So um, it, when you if you spill any ethylene glycol in your driveway, you have to make sure that that your dog is not going to lick it up. You don't have to worry about your cat uh, because uh, cats uh, do not favor sweets, so the cat will not go for the uh, diethylene glycol. All right. Well, we're running out of time here today, but you learned something about the St. Louis World's Fair. Now you learned a little bit about uh, toxicity of uh, ethylene glycol. Uh, you know about calcium chloride dehumidifying your uh, your closet. So you never know what you're going to learn on, on this show when it comes to chemistry. And you will learn some more next year. Uh, next year. Next week. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.